I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A vial that lies at the center of one of medicine's boldest experiments. Can you imagine being so sure about something that you'd risk not just your life, but the lives of your children. A barrel that holds the key to a mysterious shipwreck. They actually were resorting to eating the rats on board the ship. And a footprint that some say proves the existence of a swamp monster. I imagine he knew the dangers of going to confront something this size, and he probably was risking his life. I'm Don Wildman. Join me on a journey across the United States as we go deep into the vaults of the nation's most revered institutions, unearthing wondrous treasures from the past, extraordinary artifacts, and bizarre relics, each with a shocking story to tell and a secret to be revealed. These are the Mysteries at the Museum. In the heart of downtown St. Louis, Missouri, is the City Museum. Here, abandoned buses, derelict civic structures, and dilapidated gargoyles come together to create a surreal wonderland filled with abstract sculptures. But amid these salvaged relics is one rusty religious symbol that, according to a local reporter, Chad Garrison, tells a lurid tale of the fight between good and evil. It is a copper cross. It's about three feet high, maybe two feet wide. And it was on top of one of the centers of psychiatric care here in St. Louis. So what frightening event unfolded beneath the shadows of this cross? And how would it become the most notorious case of paranormal activity in history? 1949. 13-year-old Roland Doe is an active and healthy boy growing up in the suburbs of Washington, D.C. He was a pretty normal adolescent. 
He lived with his mother and his father and was a only child. With no brothers or sisters for company, Roland develops a close bond with his Aunt Harriet, an eccentric woman who introduces the teen to a strange and mystical underworld. She was definitely into occult uh, spirituality. She was into spirit boards, talking to the dead, even kind of borderline witchcraft. But on January 26th, Harriet passes away, leaving Roland devastated. And he immediately turns to his spirit board, attempting to communicate with his aunt in the afterlife. Shortly after, Roland began hearing these strange noises in the house, uh, clawing sounds, the sounds of clanking pipes. He also starts feeling physically hot and cold, and he's hunched over in pain. Perplexed by Roland's bizarre symptoms, his parents seek medical help for their troubled son. They take him to a doctor and to a psychiatrist, but they can't explain this illness that has come over him. So Roland's parents turn to their local minister, Reverend Luther Miles Schultz. But even the clergyman can't break the sinister spell that seems to have overtaken the boy. Reverend Schultz hears the scratching noises. Furniture begins to move. He witnesses an armchair topple over with no one near it. Reverend Schultz tells the parents that he believes evil is at work here and that the boy may be possessed. At that point, he realized that he needed to call in the experts, the Catholic priests, to perform an exorcism. But then, before any Catholic parishes are able to help, the boy manifests his most frightening symptom yet. A bloody message scratched into his chest. The word Lewis appears on Roland's chest. The family and the aunt were both from St. Louis, and they think that perhaps the key to this mystery lies back home. Straight away, the Doe family travels back to their home city, where they arrange to meet with a Catholic priest named Father William Bowdern. It seemed to Father Bowdern that the boy was definitely possessed uh, by demons. And he needed to institutionalize the boy and have doctors on hand to perform the exorcism. Roland is admitted to a Catholic health care center called Alexian Brothers Hospital. It's here, beneath this copper cross, perched high on the institution's roof, and now on display at St. Louis's City Museum, that Father Baldern and a group of priests carries out the ancient rite of exorcism to try and drive the devil out of the boy's body. He is cursing at the priest. He is spitting at them. He's imitating them as they read the prayers in Latin and and laughing. It's not the boy's voice. I mean, he's saying it, but it's this kind of the spirit is taking over his vocal cords. 
Then, on April 18th, after nearly five weeks of impassioned prayers, Roland's bizarre condition reaches its climax. The boy awakes with a seizure. And Roland says in this powerful, commanding voice, Satan, Satan, I demand you to leave in the name of St. Michael. And the boy then says, Dominus, which is Latin for God. And Roland falls into a peaceful sleep, wakes up a few minutes later and says, you know, it is gone. It was like a switch was turned and he was back to being the 13-year-old boy he was back in January. But the story of Roland Doe doesn't end there. As word of the possession spreads through the Washington, D.C. area, it makes a huge impact on a student named William Peter Blatty. William Peter Blatty is an undergraduate at Georgetown University when all this is going on, and he reads the account of the exorcism in the D.C. papers and is inspired to write The Exorcist, arguably one of the scariest horror films of all time. Today, more than 60 years later, whether or not Roland Doe was in fact possessed by the devil remains a source of heated debate. There are those who say it was all psychological and those who say that this was truly the work of the devil. The truth is, you know, no one ever will know except Roland Doe. Whatever the truth may be, this cross now looming over the city museum in St. Louis remains a haunting reminder of man's eternal battle with the forces of evil. A miniature New Orleans jazz funeral, a bass-alligator hybrid, and a trailer that collided with a UFO. Welcome to the weird world of the Abita Mystery House, Louisiana's most eccentric museum. Here, amid this collection of whimsical curiosities, is an object that Dana Holyfield claims is the mark of a mysterious bayou legend. It's nine and a half inches long, and it has webbed toes with a fourth dew claw on the side, which is like a thumb. And Dana knows the story behind this grotesque relic better than anyone else. That's because this plaster cast of a creature's footprint was made by her own grandfather, Harlan Ford, a man whose tale of a terrifying encounter would strike fear into the hearts of local residents for generations. I imagine he knew the dangers of going to confront something this size, and he probably was risking his life. So what bizarre beast made this impression? Louisiana, 1963. Harlan Ford and his friend Billy Mills are on a weekend getaway hunting for wild turkey in a bayou marshland known as Honey Island Swamp. Anytime you go in the swamp, you're going to come across snakes and a dangerous wild boar that have razor-sharp tusks. You see alligators, just all kinds of things out there. Cautiously making their way through the wetlands, Ford and Mills survey the area for game. But suddenly, they are stopped in their tracks by the sight of a strange creature emerging from the trees ahead of them. My grandfather described this thing as standing about seven foot, 
It had long, mossy hair hanging all over it, broad shoulders and long arms and long, slender legs. Ford draws his gun, but then hesitates to fire. My grandfather said he couldn't have shot it because it looked too human. What he remembered most was his eyes, large eyes that were menacing looking. Then, as swiftly as it appeared, the curious creature retreats back into the thick woods, leaving the two men frozen in shock. Over the course of the next decade, Harlan Ford becomes obsessed with a mysterious humanoid that he swears he saw that day in 1963 and often returns to Honey Island Swamp with a film camera in hand. Even though this was a terrifying, scary encounter at first, it didn't keep him from going back in the swamp because he always hoped that he would see it again. Then, in 1974, Ford is out on a duck hunting expedition when he comes across an altogether gruesome sight. He saw a hog laying at the edge of the woods. Its throat had been ripped. And that's when he saw tracks. Taken aback by this enormous footprint and knowing that most predators would have eaten the hog, not simply left it to die, Ford can't help but wonder, could this four-toed footprint be definitive proof that a bloodthirsty humanoid is roaming the grounds of Honey Island Swamp? Louisiana, 1974. Eleven years after he claims to have seen a strange humanoid figure in the woods of Honey Island Swamp, hunter Harlan Ford makes another startling discovery. He finds a footprint that he thinks belongs to the creature. So what is this bizarre beast that seems to be roaming this bayou marshland? Determined to find out, Ford makes this plaster molding of the footprint, now on display at the Abita Mystery House, and takes it to wildlife experts for an analysis. Their conclusion was that it weighed approximately 400 pounds. The webbing on the toes led them to believe it probably could swim and climb. Although no one can be sure what animal this imprint belongs to, Ford goes public with his discovery. The creature is dubbed by the press as the Honey Island Swamp Monster and quickly becomes the stuff of local legend. Soon, other eyewitnesses come forward with reported sightings prompting Ford to continue his obsessive search for more evidence of this elusive marshland beast. He was so determined to find out what this was. He knew it was out there. He just had to know more about it. The hunt for the mysterious monster remains Ford's passion up to his death in 1980. With his passing, the tale of the creature begins to fade from memory until his widow finds an intriguing film strip stashed in his belongings. No one knew what was on it. It just was labeled Honey Island Monster. And so we got out her old projector. You could see it well enough that it was moving through the trees. Walking through the forest is the form of a shadowy figure. It was thrilling because I realized he did get more evidence. But not everyone is convinced. 
Skeptics say the monster captured in Ford's footage could be a hunter wearing a heavy camouflage suit, while others wonder if the whole story could have been made up to protect prime hunting areas from outsiders. While the existence of the Honey Island Swamp Monster remains up for debate, at the Abita Mystery House, this plaster footprint commemorates a creature that is forever cemented in Bayou folklore. Nestled between the nation's most iconic symbols of federal power, in Washington, D.C., is an institution dedicated to the art of espionage. The International Spy Museum. Among the ingenious inventions showcased here are secret listening devices, an umbrella that can fire poison pellets, and night vision goggles. But what clever gadget is concealed in this sterling silver cigar box? According to historian Dr. Mark Stout, none. This cigar box has no hidden spy features. There's no secret compartments or anything. It really just is a cigar box. It's what's engraved inside this innocuous object that makes it remarkable. The inscription is from Sidney Riley to Robert Lockhart, commemorating their joint adventures together in August and September of 1918 in Bolshevik Russia. Today, the names Sidney Riley and Robert Lockhart are all but forgotten. But their daring exploits inspired the creation of one of the most enduring characters in literary history. The name? Bond. James Bond. Russia, 1918. A group of communist ideologues called Bolsheviks have seized power. Breaking from the old guard, the new leaders sign a peace treaty with Germany, effectively ending the country's involvement in World War I. But the British government is depending on Russia's armed forces to facilitate an Allied victory and decides to try and destroy this new regime to draw their military back into battle. The men charged with overseeing this dangerous mission are two covert operatives, Robert Bruce Lockhart and Sidney Riley. Robert Bruce Lockhart had been the consul general in Moscow in 1917. So the British prime minister sends him back to try and establish relations with this new crazy Bolshevik government. His partner, Sidney Riley, is the agent on the ground. He was brilliant. He was audacious and daring. He had great language skills, and he had just tremendous sort of personal charisma. Together, they devise a coup to bring down the Bolshevik government. The idea is that the British, they're going to arrest all the senior members of the Bolshevik party, and they're going to replace them with a military dictatorship, which will be more friendly to Britain and also bring Russia back into the war. Throughout the summer months, Riley and Lockhart worked to bring their plan to fruition. But on August 30th, disaster strikes. The Russian secret police, called the Chaka, uncover the plot. They have informers everywhere, and they're thoroughly ruthless in their tactics. The Chaka round up a handful of British operatives involved in the plan, arresting Lockhart in the process. It seems the British agents are doomed. 
A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. It's 1918, Russia. Two British secret agents, Robert Lockhart and Sidney Riley, are planning a coup to bring down the newly formed Bolshevik regime. But when the Russian secret police, known as the Chaka, find out about the plot, they arrest Lockhart and begin to hunt for Riley. So will the two spies make it out of Russia alive? While the Chaka have Lockhart held captive, in spite of their best efforts, the Russian secret police are unable to locate Sidney Riley. Riley goes underground for a time, and he disguises himself as a German diplomat. He uses one of his 11 passports, and relying on his fluent German, in true audacious fashion, he heads on a train to German-occupied Estonia. From there, he gets himself to Stockholm, gets on a ship, and he's in London by November. That same month, Lockhart is released in a prisoner swap for a high-ranking Soviet official. And when the ambassador and his former partner, Sidney Riley, are finally reunited in London, they regale each other with tales of their perilous mission. And Riley gives a gift to Lockhart, which is this cigar box in commemoration of their adventures and their travails together in Russia. It's the very same cigar box that is now on display at the International Spy Museum. Although the two secret agents' plot to topple the Bolsheviks' reign ultimately failed, Riley is not content to give up just yet. 
Riley remained very anti-Bolshevik, and he was looking for other ways to weaken or overthrow that government. In November 1925, Riley returns to Russia with a new plot to destabilize the regime. But once again, the Chaka are on to him. Riley is arrested, and then he's put in a car, he's driven out into the countryside, and he's shot and killed. And that's the end of Sidney Riley. But this courageous spy's legacy is destined to live on. Thanks in part to his trusted friend, Robert Lockhart. In 1931, Robert Lockhart publishes his memoirs, which of course is full of stories about Sidney Riley. And several years later, those chronicles fall into the hands of a young government official with literary ambitions. A man named Ian Fleming reads these memoirs. And Fleming uses Sidney Riley as the basis for a series of novels that he goes on to write about the suave, womanizing Agent 007, James Bond. And at the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., this cigar box honors the real-life story of the true hero that spawned a legend. Located in the eclectic capital city of Austin is the Bob Bullock Texas State History Museum, a three-story interactive institution that chronicles the southwestern land's rise from Spanish colony to a center of industry. Here, visitors can marvel at countless artifacts culled from the realms of land, air, space, and even the bottom of the sea, like this small wooden cylinder discovered with the help of archaeologist Jim Bruseth. The object is handmade about 20 inches in, in, in length, and it was made in the late 17th century, and it contained an absolute premium commodity on an early voyage of exploration. What was in this oak barrel? And what insight does it provide into the disappearance of the French ship known as La Belle? France, 1683. King Louis XIV begins planning a new expedition to North America with the goal of establishing a permanent settlement where the Mississippi River meets the Gulf of Mexico. Chosen to lead the mission is an ambitious but troubled explorer named Robert Cavalier de La Salle. For La Salle, everything was at stake. His other explorations up in the Great Lakes had ended in failure. His fortune and fame in France depended upon this expedition. On July 24, 1684, La Salle and his crew board a fleet of four ships and set sail on a voyage across the Atlantic Ocean. Then, after six trying months at sea, La Salle spots a stretch of land and believes he has finally reached the Gulf of Mexico. But after several more months scouring the coastline in search of the elusive Mississippi River, a frustrated La Salle must face the fact that he's lost. Worst of all, after a series of pirate attacks, mutinies, and defections, he's now down to just one ship, a vessel named La Belle. But the explorer doesn't give up hope. Instead, he devises a new strategy to locate the river. He anchors La Belle far off the coast and heads to shore to search the area by foot. 
He leaves the captain of LaBelle with strict orders to stay there until I come back. I should be back in 10 days to two weeks. Don't move. But LaSalle's trek inland doesn't go as planned. He spent over two months wandering around looking for the river and never actually finding the Mississippi. Over 60 days later, LaSalle finally returns to where he left his ship. But when he emerges onto the coast, the explorer is taken back by a shocking sight. LaBelle and its crew have disappeared. LaBelle was the lifeline for LaSalle and his colony. Without LaBelle, his colony was really doomed. It's March, 1686. French explorer Robert Cavalier de La Salle's quest to find the mouth of the Mississippi River has ended in failure. But when he and his men return from their trek on foot along the Gulf of Mexico, they find that both their ship, La Belle, and the rest of its crew have mysteriously disappeared. So what happened? Bewildered and left without a ship with which to sail back to France, La Salle and his crew are forced to walk to the nearest colony, some 1,200 miles north in Canada. The failure of La Salle's expedition signals the death knell for France's hope of establishing a stronghold in the Gulf of Mexico. And a year later, the disastrous mission comes to a grisly conclusion when the hapless commander is murdered by his mutinous crew. For nearly 300 years, the exact whereabouts of La Belle, the ship that seemingly vanished into thin air, remains shrouded in mystery. Until a team of researchers embarks on an epic quest to track it down. 1995. The Texas Historical Commission has been scouring the Gulf of Mexico in search of the long-lost La Belle for nearly three decades. And finally, they're on the brink of an astounding discovery. In June, they locate the sunken vessel, below 12 feet of water, off the coast of central Texas in Matagorda Bay. It's located nearly 400 miles away from the Mississippi River Captain LaSalle so desperately tried to find. Of the over one million relics unearthed from the wreckage, under the guidance of archaeologist Jim Bruseth, are bronze cannons, brass trading goods, and 85 wooden barrels one of which holds the key to the mystery of La Belle. The barrel that is now on display at the Texas State History Museum is a water barrel. And one of the ways we really know that it's a water barrel is that there was no residue in there. And that's really a, uh, a signature of a container that held water at one point. With this recovered cargo, and by cross-referencing accounts written in the diary of a La Belle sailor, Bruseth and his colleagues are able to piece together a harrowing story of what happened to the ship and its crew. When LaBelle was anchored in 1686, waiting for LaSalle to find the Mississippi River, they had provisions for a couple weeks, but LaSalle was gone much longer than that. The water was running out, the food was running out. They actually were resorting to eating the rats on board the ship. They had tried to go ashore and get some additional water, and the men that did that never came back. Their only longboat for going ashore was then lost. Without water, some desperate sailors even turned to drinking the ship's supply of alcohol in a last-ditch attempt to save themselves. 
As we know, liquor does not hydrate you, it dehydrates you, and it makes the lack of water even more of a problem. And people began to die of thirst. Eventually, things are just in such a state of despair that the captain says, we're going to violate LaSalle's orders, we're going to pull up anger. But this decision to set sail will prove to be tragic, as LaBelle heads straight into an oncoming storm, forever sealing the ship's fate. She drifts across the bay and slams into the southern end of Matagorda Bay and becomes wrecked. For France, the disaster has a devastating historical consequence. The sinking of La Belle doomed La Salle's colony and opened up the door for Spain to come in and occupy the region that we today call Texas. And this barrel, once filled with fresh water, remains on display at the Bob Bullock Texas State History Museum, a symbol of the turning tide in the colonization of the American South. The Smithsonian National Museum of American History in Washington, D.C., contains a vast assortment of over three million artifacts, from President Lincoln's top hat to a uniform worn by George Washington. But laid out in the institution's Price of Freedom exhibit is a piece of military garb that associate curator Kathleen Golden knows was sported by one of the nation's unlikeliest soldiers. It's a chamois coat, which is filled with military medals and buttons. And it was made for a war hero. So what decorated veteran wore this vest? And how did he earn his prestigious awards? Spring 1917, New Haven, Connecticut. The United States Army is preparing its bravest men to join the Allied forces on the battlefields of World War I. Among them is Private J. Robert Conroy, a member of the 102nd Infantry, 26th Yankee Division, who is about to welcome an unlikely new recruit to his unit. During his training, a puppy wandered onto the field and caught the attention of Conroy. With short, stumpy legs and a small tail, the frisky pit bull mutt quickly develops a bond with Conroy, who affectionately names him Stubby. And though pets are not allowed in camp, the dog quickly wins over the commanding officer. Stubby performed the salute by raising his paw to his head and putting it back down. And I think that was enough to persuade the officer to allow him to stay. In July, the 26th Yankee Division is given orders to deploy to the battlefields of Europe. And Conroy sneaks his new best friend Stubby aboard his war-bound troop ship. And by early 1918, the tiny soldier finds himself on the front lines in France as the official mascot of Conroy's division. Remarkably, the canine quickly acclimates to the loud rifles and heavy artillery fire and even begins performing an indispensable role on the battlefield. He would find injured Americans and... He would call attention to them, for the Red Cross, to come and collect them, and sometimes actually drag them to the trenches. But his heroics don't end there. One day, the 26th Yankee Division is doing reconnaissance along the Argonne Forest in northern France, 
when Stubby sniffs out an intruder lurking in their midst. When the stranger tries to calm the barking dog in German, Stubby instantly realizes that he has encountered an enemy combatant. He knew someone was an ally if they spoke English. So he actually grabbed him by the seat of his pants and held him until the Americans came. For capturing this German spy, Stubby is made a sergeant and officially becomes the first dog to be given a rank in the United States Army. His stripes are stitched into this uniform, made by the women of Chateau Thierry, a French town that, thanks in part to the mutt's bravery, is saved from enemy forces. But the courageous dog's fate is about to take a sinister turn. One morning in late February, the Germans ambush Stubby's division in northern France, surprising the Americans with one of the war's newest and deadliest weapons, poison gas. The toxic chemical quickly fills the dog's lungs, leaving him immobilized. Gasping for oxygen, Stubby is rushed to a nearby field hospital. But will the canine hero survive? Nineteen eighteen, World War One is reaching its bloody apex as Germany pushes deeper into Allied territories. The United States, however, has an unlikely secret weapon on its side: a small, scrappy dog named Stubby, who has proven adept at saving soldiers and capturing enemies. But after the courageous canine is taken down in a poison gas attack, he is left gasping for air. So, will Stubby survive? Fortunately, after being given oxygen by doctors at a mobile medical unit, the hardy mutt makes a miraculous recovery. They were able to patch him up, and the hospital was able to save him. Soon, Stubby returns to the trenches with the rest of his division, where he turns his near-death experience into an invaluable defense mechanism. Stubby learned to recognize the smell of gas. And so, in future attacks, he would howl and bark, and he was able to warn the soldiers, and they were able to put their masks on so they did not suffer any injuries. By the time World War One officially draws to a close in November 1918, the resilient dog has seen action in 17 battles, earning a number of honors for his acts of bravery, including this wound chevron. For taking shrapnel during an attack, and in 1919, Stubby finally returns home, a national celebrity. The stories of his feats were all in the newspapers. Stubby was considered the greatest American animal war hero. But five years after the war, on April 4th, 1926, Stubby passes away in his loving owner's arms. To preserve his legacy for future posterity, the intrepid pit bull is taxidermied and put on display, along with his decorated uniform, at the Smithsonian National Museum of American History. And today, millions of visitors can admire the diminutive soldier, whose courage under fire paved the way for future generations of canine troops. Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. A city synonymous with industry and invention, 
And perhaps nowhere is this enterprising spirit better showcased than at the Heinz History Center, where talking robots proudly stand alongside pioneering steel bridge replicas and cable cars. But according to museum president Andy Masick, one liquid-filled glass container represents a very different kind of innovation. It's got a metal cap with a rubber membrane. It only holds three cc's of fluid, and it's got a yellowed paper label on it. Its contents could change the world. So what's in this vial? And what role did it play in one of the most daring human experiments in medical history? Summer, 1952. The United States is in the midst of a full-blown epidemic. Across the nation, an insidious virus is striking down thousands of innocent victims, often leaving them paralyzed or disfigured. The name of this terrible disease? Polio. Polio was one of the most devastating and debilitating diseases you can imagine. And the most horrible thing about it was it struck children. And no one knew how. In fact, the only thing that the American public is sure of is that this sinister contagion is spreading quickly. In 1952, nearly 60,000 people are infected, twice the number of cases as the year before. Worst of all, there's no cure. Some people, mostly children, were killed outright. But those who survived the initial onset might be confined to an iron lung or a wheelchair. The country was panicked. It seems that the only way to stop the virus is with a vaccine. Vaccines work by exposing the body to a weakened but still living form of the disease, enabling the immune system to learn how to fight the infection. To this end, the U.S. government pours millions of dollars into research labs across the country. But one prominent scientist has reservations about the standard vaccination practices of his day, a virologist at the University of Pittsburgh named Dr. Jonas Salk. Salk thinks that using a live polio virus as a vaccine is too dangerous and runs the risk of lethally infecting patients. So he comes up with an ingenious alternative. Jonas Salk thought that if he could take a small sample of dead polio virus and inject it into a human, that that human body would create the antibodies it needed to protect itself from a live polio attack. Salk's detractors, on the other hand, believe that using a dead virus for a vaccine will never work. There was a great debate among the doctors and scientists of America. At the same time, the disease kept getting stronger and stronger. Finally, Salk is ready to test his trial drug, a strain of the polio virus that has been treated and killed with formaldehyde. But the only way to prove his vaccine works is by testing it on a human. This was pretty controversial. Not everyone believed that Salk's vaccine was ready for human trials. What if the polio was alive? What if it infected kids? So Jonas Salk comes up with an audacious plan that puts everything on the line. It's 1953. A deadly virus is sweeping the United States, killing thousands of children and leaving countless others paralyzed. 
The name of this devastating disease? Polio. But one man, Dr. Jonas Salk, has used a dead form of the virus to create a vaccine. The problem is, it must be tested. So who will risk their life to prove this new vaccine works? Salk decides to do the unthinkable. He injects himself with a trial vaccine. He was pretty confident that the killed virus wouldn't infect him with the disease. But who really knew? But the doctor doesn't stop there. He then asks the people nearest and dearest to him to be tested as well. The next day, he injected his family, his three children, his wife, then co-workers who voluntarily stepped forward. This was the moment of truth. If Salk is wrong, his beloved friends and family could all die from exposure to the lethal polio virus. Can you imagine being so sure about something that you'd risk your life? Not just your life, but the lives of your children. Salk and his family anxiously await any signs or symptoms of the dreaded disease to show. But none do. In fact, the brave human guinea pigs find that their bodies have responded well to the vaccine, producing the antibodies needed to defeat a polio infection. It was a moment in history that changed the world. Astonishing even his most skeptical peers, Salk's polio vaccine is quickly approved for national clinical trials. People were desperate for a cure, and so people stepped forward. Whole school districts said, try us, we believe in you. The inoculations proved to be an overwhelming success. And on April 12, 1955, vials of the Salk vaccine hit the public market relieving millions of worried Americans. Within 24 years, polio is eradicated from the United States. And today, this vial of Dr. Jonas Salk's polio vaccine remains encased at the Heinz History Center in Pittsburgh, forever immortalizing the bold determination of one of modern medicine's greatest innovators. From a life-saving vaccine to starving sailors, a demonic possession to a canine war hero. I'm Don Wildman, and these are the Mysteries at the Museum. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.